In fact, you could say the chief function of pop culture out there is to distract people from thinking of themselves. Mm. And, and in a sense of being self-critical, self-aware, not not narcissism, but, but self-awareness. Uh, this is not new. Blaise Pascal in the 17th century, the French scientist and mystic said, the chief difficulty of humans today is their inability to be alone by themselves for 15 minutes in their private chamber. Mm. Now that's before, you know, Facebook and Home Shopping Network, you know. Mm. So he was talking about, and he said, even the court, with all of its privilege, had to invent the jester. And the jester's function is to divert the court lest they reflect upon their own souls. Mm. And our culture, a pop culture, is little but distraction 24-7. Welcome back to the Hidden World Podcast. I'm your host, Whitney Logan, and my guest today is the incomparable Dr. James Hollis. Dr. Hollis is a Jungian analyst, author, and teacher. He holds a doctorate in literature from Drew University and taught humanities for 26 years before training as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute of Zurich, Switzerland. Dr. Hollis is the co-founder of the Philadelphia Young Institute. He served for many years as executive director of the C.G. Young Educational Center in Houston, Texas, and has worked as a senior training analyst for the Interregional Society for Jungian Analysts. He now lives and works in Washington, D.C., and serves on the board of directors the Young Society of Washington. Dr. Hollis is also Vice President Emeritus of the Philemon Foundation, a group of scholars and donors working to prepare the unpublished works of C.G. Young. Dr. Hollis is the author of 18 books. His most recent book, The Broken Mirror, Refracted Visions of Ourselves, is the topic of our conversation today. Dr. Hollis's books have had a very meaningful impact on me over the course of the last decade or so, and I am so honored and delighted that he was willing to have this timely and compelling conversation with me today. Welcome to this week's episode of The Hidden World. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to jump in because I want to be very honoring of your time. Um, all right, so your book is called The Broken Mirror, mm -hmm. Refracted Visions of Ourselves. Throughout the book, you seem to be suggesting that um, it is hard to see ourselves clearly. This may be kind of a hefty question to begin with, but why is it so difficult to see ourselves clearly? Well, it's, it is a hefty question, and that's why there's a book about it. So uh, the first three chapters outline at least three areas of um, conflict or, or problem that we're going to run into. In the first chapter, I, I approach, every one of us says, well, I want to know myself, but, but do we really? 
do we really want to deal with those places where we were governed by fear or cowardice or we were trying to cozy up to someone for some per personal reason? Um, there are a lot of areas of self-awareness that are really not so inviting when you think about it. But I, I mentioned three different issues that we have to face that are in all of us. First is really fear of the magnitude of the project. It's, it's, it's such a daunting task to try to voyage into the central mysteries of why we are here, what our life journey is about, what, what makes us decide the way we decide and, and so forth. So there's a kind of intimidation that starts within each of us at some point. Um, secondly, there's a, what I call in the chapter lassitude. That's a nice word for laziness. There's a part of us that just doesn't want to do the hard work because it's, it's ongoing. It's forever. It's for the rest of your life. Every day you sort of have to ask some very basic questions like, you know, what was that decision in service to inside of me? Really? You know, don't, don't trust your first answer. Often it's conditioned reflex. And the third internal obstacle is, um, that what I call the moi complex. That's that private doubt that we all have, like me, you want me to do this? Wouldn't it be so much easier to get a self-help book and find in three easy steps to this or that or 30 days to whatever, and it's all taken care of for me? But I think at some level, we all know those books don't work very well because they all are shortcuts to the hard work of dealing with what spills out of us every day. So that's the first chapter, the internal obstacles, attitudinal and practice obstacles that we all have to some degree. Secondly, is we are by, by definition and by necessity, uh, adaptive creatures. So we're continuously having to adapt to the demands of our society, to the world around us. It started in infancy. What's going on in my family? What, what, what are these conflicts about? How do, I, how do I deal with it? Do I keep my mouth shut? Uh, do I try to move in there and try to stabilize something? Uh, do I feel valued here? A, a thousand questions that are really existential and necessary for every child to be asking, whether consciously or unconsciously, that not addressed later will often be showing up in our contemporary choices. In other words, a choice I make today may very well have its origin 50 years ago or 60 years ago or whatever. We see it all the time in our relational patterns. And then thirdly, we are that particular animal that wants to understand. We, we want our lives to be meaningful. And so life is raw chaos. It's, it's events happening, molecules combining and decombining. Where does this sense of purpose or order comes from? Well, it comes from the human psyche. You know, the animal world of which we are part lives by instinct. You know, they, they, they know when to sleep, when to eat, when to procreate, when to avoid predators, etc. But we also serve all kinds of socializing functions in the complexity of the world we live in. And our adaptations and the stories that we evolve to explain those adaptations. In other words, two children in the same family having the same cereal for breakfast, the same parents, will come out with quite different interpretations of who they are and what their marching orders are and what's acceptable for them and what's forbidden for them. And, and you can see it all the time. There are innate characteristics in each child, yes, but it's interesting how we all find our own stories about life. 
And so many of our stories, efforts to make sense of life after all, um, derive from early childhood experience where we really have no comparative framework. We, we, we haven't lived in multiple families of origin. We haven't traveled to different cultures. And, and yet years later, we can be captivated by those stories. So you begin to realize just in those first chapters, these obstacles that if we're not aware of them and we don't factor them into our self-awareness are going to bind us to our past, bind us to our earliest sense of self and world and our interpretations of what the traffic in between me and the other is all about. And again, that's what creates our patterns. That was so well said. I, I, I think that one of the things that made me want to start recommending this book as required reading in my own psychotherapy practice is that first, it seems like you diagnose this problem in a very accessible way. And then in subsequent chapters, you lay out a lot of them um, concepts or methods for which we might, if we're brave enough or perhaps compelled uh -huh. to get a better look at ourselves, things we might employ in service of that. Um, and in the second chapter in particular, I, I think when you say uh, it's called the Zen paradox, um, what you have become is now your chief problem. Yes. I wonder if you would be willing to explore that point in particular a little bit with me. What do you mean when you say mm -hmm. what you have become is now your chief problem? Often that's the case. Uh, I'll, I'll be a little autobiographical here because I can speak of that with personal uh, experience. Um, I, I lived in a family that was hard beset by the conditions of life, lack of education, poverty, the impact of the depression, World War II, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a, a struggling and honest family, but always fearful and always uh, troubled, not to mention the troubles going on outside in the world. And I learned early as a protective adaptation, two things by and large to keep my mouth shut because I realized when I spoke up, it, it didn't necessarily help. It could actually destabilize the environment uh, even more. So I, I kept my emotions to myself. You know, I would interact with people, of course, but I kept my emotional reality to myself. Um, secondly, I, I learned early the value of learning and I still value it. I'm still involved in public education, which is part of what the book's about. But I, I also tended to privilege the intellect um, which is value, of course, to reflect on why our lives are what they are and what they need to be and what choices we have to make. I mean, that's part of living a conscious life after all. But I, I, my early life was in academia and I, I was sort of cruising along and I had all of my goals satisfied by the time I was 30. I had a doctorate before I was 27 years old and I had a dream job as a teacher and then at midlife had a serious depression where something reached up from down below and just grabbed me and pulled me under. And for the first time, I had to ask the question. That's why sometimes the spur to self-awareness is out of necessity or out of suffering. Or someone gets in one's face and says, you know, this is not working for us or something like that. 
And so I had to ask the question for the first time in my life, since I followed the plan and followed it pretty well, why does it not feel right inside? Why is, why is my psyche withdrawn its approval and support from me? That, that was a, a very destabilizing question and a question that cast everything into doubt. And little did I know that I was, I was beginning the first steps toward the second half of life. My presumption was, well, I'll continue doing what I'm doing since it's working pretty well the rest of my journey. But the psyche had another idea. So when people later on, when I retrained completely, moved out of academia and um, became a psychoanalyst, a Jungian analyst, after studying in Zurich, I came back to, to America and I started seeing people for the first time. And everyone that came in, of course, was a different person with a different history, a different presenting set of issues. But one thing they all had in common, and that was their understanding of self and world, no longer seemed to be working if it had been working. Their map of the terrain no longer seemed particularly applicable to where they found themselves. And I thought, well, you know, something has played out here. Something has died. What is that? And yet there was no clarity whatsoever about, well, what do I need to move toward? And, and so a person who's in that difficult in-between, which happens periodically in the course of a normal lifetime, that's when they may solicit a conversation with a therapist. Because naturally, their first assumption is, well, the therapist learned in graduate school how to fix this, right? <laughs> or the therapist has some magic tools or, or somehow they're exempt from similar kinds of difficulties in their life. You know, they live in a perfectly adoring marriage, their children worship them, they're wholly <laughs> satisfied with their careers. I mean, those are the projections, as you well know, that are on the therapist all the time. So for, you know, a, a, a fee, the therapist will impart to you the game plan. And there are certainly things we do learn about how to approach these matters, but we also know if this is going to be a work in depth as opposed to a band-aid situation, this is a project for the rest of your life. In this regard, you have to constantly be asking that question. When I make a choice, what is that in service to inside of me really? have to add that word really because your first answer is going to be the rationalization it's going to be the old adaptation defending its territory it's it's not going to be anything that helps you break through it's going to help ratify your old defenses so just to give come back to the story here i i began to realize it was not i was absent of feeling i had learned to distance myself from them so guess what? Nothing ever goes away. It always shows up somewhere else. It's kind of like our ecological crisis right now. Mm -hmm. We can continue to abuse nature in the assumption that it's infinite resources, but you know, nature begins to show up and say, it's time to pay the bill now. You understand? There's a quid pro quo here. Mm -hmm. And the same is true of the human psyche. So if I push something underground, then it's going to enter the body as an ailment of some kind. It'll become an emotional disturbance. Uh, it'll show up in troubling dreams. It will come out as an unconscious behavior. Uh, it's not going to go away. It will go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then you have to deal with whatever the consequences of that event may be. 
So little did I know, as I mentioned, that I was starting a different kind of journey. Little did I know that I was living so much of my life reactively to and reflexively to stresses in the environment. And the truth is that's, that's probably the case for most human beings. Mm-hmm. None of what I'm saying here is judgmental in any way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's like that is our human condition. We're tiny, we're vulnerable, dependent. And from the, the crib onward, <laughs> we're trying to figure out who are you? Who am I? What's the traffic between us? How am I to relate to you? Is this safe? Is it unsafe? Um, what do I have to do to win your approval and affection? Uh, how do I stay out of harm's way? Am I myself acceptable? Or do I have to twist myself into something that becomes acceptable, uh, acceptable to you? I mean, those questions are, are part of our survival adaptation questions. You can't avoid them, even in the best of circumstances. And of course, my point is simply, as we begin to formulate these primal stories that rise out of those questions, our putative answers, if you will, to the questions, they tend to become attitudes, practices, and time reflexive responses. So one then begins to live in, in a sense, an adaptive life, not our life, but an adaptive life. That's why those of us who work from a a psychodynamic perspective don't consider the eruptions called symptomatology um, a terrible thing, although the ego may think so at the time. I wasn't thrilled to be depressed, Mm -hmm. but we rather ask this very obvious question. It's obvious when you've asked it, why has it come? Mm -hmm. What does it want from me? What is it asking of me? And it took me a while to begin to ask those kinds of questions. And many times these kinds of things, and the venue may be a troubled marriage or uh, uh, you know, too much self-medication or uh, in my case, a depression or whatever the, you know, the provoking situation for that kind of conversation, whether it's with a therapist or with ourselves, it's, it's really the entree into a deepened conversation around the meaning of your whole life journey and once you've really understood that, this is a conversation you want to, to continue your entire life. Because if you don't, guess what? You're living somebody else's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or you're just living reactively. You see, you're, you're, you're living in a response to, you know, in the face of large influences, we have basically three choices. And they're not conscious choices. One is serve what I learned. That's why people will often roll over these patterns into the next generation and the third generation, the fourth and so forth. Pass it on, in other words, or run as far as away from it as you can. Uh, overcompensate. I won't be like my mother. I won't live my father's life. You know, well, I'm still being defined by the other then, not by me. Mm-hmm. Or thirdly, one is out there trying to fix or treat this in some way life of distraction, a life of busyness, a life of submergence of awareness into pop culture and, and so forth. There are a thousand escapes out there. Mm-hmm. So we're all caught to some degree in one or more of those three patterns of repetition, compensation, or, or an unconscious treatment plan. Mm. So it's like we're already reacting, you see. And then of course, if the reaction or our treatment plan has consequences of its own, that brings people into therapy too, or causes them sooner or later to hit a wall of some kind. 
So, you know, it's, it's as if each of us really has an appointment with our own souls at some point down the line. And not everybody shows up for the appointment. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's not just midlife chronologically, of course. As you know, sometimes it's when a person gets downsized at work and they never realized to that point how much their outer structure was carrying all that was unaddressed in their life or they lose an important relationship mm -hmm. or their children go off to school and say, you know, goodbye without saying thanks, uh, whatever may happen, or they're facing, you know, aging and mortality. Mm -hmm. There are a thousand precipitating events, but the question then is when you wake up at three in the morning and ask the question, who am I? And what am I doing with my life? What comes up on the screen for you, you see? Mm -hmm. That kind of appointment, you know, we can flee, but if you flee it, it's going to come out somewhere else in your unconscious behaviors, that's for sure. Or, or you simply have the unlived life. Yes. Yeah. Um, I really like that phrase, unconscious treatment plan. I'm, I'm going to borrow it and use it. You're welcome to it. Yes. <laughs> and by the way, there's nothing I'm saying that's new. In 1885, Tolstoy published a novella long short story called The Death of Ivan Illich. And Ivan Illich in Russian is like John Johnson. It was meant to be an every person story. And this was a fellow who lived exactly as his society had given him the game plan. You know, he went to the right school. He married the right person. They had the right number of children. They lived in the right neighborhood. He was a lawyer. He became a judge. He moves up the hierarchy. And then one day he has a pain in his side that doesn't go away. And it turns out to be, although it's never named, um, it fits the symptoms of a fatal cancer. Mm. And for the first time in his life, he asked questions like this, long overdue. Mm. And interestingly enough, no one around him wants to even converse with him about it because they're too busy doing their provisional lives. They're too busy following their instructions. And in his last three days, he has the first honest conversations of his life with an illiterate peasant by the name of Jerusalem, who, who, with whom he has conversation about life and death. Mm. And, and he actually asked the question, what if my life has been wrong? Rather than say wrong, I would say, what if it's been mostly adaptive mm. rather than authentic? See, yeah. That's another way of putting it that sort of depathologizes it. And, and, you know, because we're obliged to, have to make those adaptations, as I mentioned. So, you know, if Tolstoy wouldn't have written that that long ago, if it wasn't something he was seeing all around himself as well. Yeah, there's a resonance there in the story of Job as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. Who also followed all the rules. Yes. All the rules. And then a ton load of woe falls on his head. And he sort of says, what, what did I do wrong? And his presumption was, of course, he, he had a contract. And that, that, that raises another question. I think all of us, to some degree, assume there's a contract. In other words, if I mean well, if I behave properly, if I mind my behaviors and my P's and Q's and so forth, the world will be reciprocal, right? Well, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Maybe not. Maybe you'll lose a child. Maybe, maybe your, your marriage will fall apart. Um, maybe you'll you, you never be able to achieve that career that you wanted. A thousand you know, confrontations with the real world 
And, and then one's uh, presumption is called into to question. And the book of Job was written approximately 3000 years ago by an unknown Hebraic poet critiquing the assumption of his people at that time that we have a special agreement with God. Mm -hmm. and, and presumably <laughs> we can summon the party of the first part into court and say, you're not abiding by this contract, which is what Job tries to do. <clears throat> and then he realizes, no, there's no contract. You live in a radical existential ambiguity. Don't presume. Yeah, that's good. Chapter six, you discuss why it's difficult to engage in depth psychotherapy with certain groups of people, one of which is men or most men. Uh -huh. This is another hefty question, but since you've written a whole other book about it, I figure I can uh -huh. ask you. Oh, sure, well, you ask anything. You know, why is this the case? A lot of, ca lot of cases. Um, it's mostly social conditioning. I, I, I think men's psychology in general, and I do think part of this is, con is social conditioning, part of it seems to be inherent. Our psyches seem to be goal-directed, and it's always about achieving the goal, whatever the goal is, without necessarily asking what's the price of getting there, and will this um, in some way uh, be satisfying once I arrive there? And, and from childhood on, there's enormous shaming from one little boy to another little boy. Um, when, when one shows any moment of weakness or vulnerability, the one thing you don't do is you don't show emotion. You don't cry. You, 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 don't, you don't let on what's really happening inside. And every boy goes through that to some degree. I, I recall in very specific uh, terms, we used to throw knives at each other with no homicidal intent, but just to see who was, quote, a sissy because he would move when a knife was coming at him. Uh, that isn't stupid. I don't know what is. We, we were boys, right? And we also shoot, used to shoot boob, boob, guns, uh, BB guns at each other. And it's like, uh, you know, the only, the only rule was you don't shoot at their face. You can shoot anywhere else. And if you wound up running or flinching, you were a sissy. Mm. And, and we did that constantly. And um, so you learn to be a stranger to yourself. Mm. Your, your whole feeling life goes underground. And it ultimately leads most men to be depressed, albeit undiagnosed, because when you're separated from your own truth, um, depression is one of the side effects. It also tends to lead to a higher degree of self-medication because you know, you're hurting. So you turn to a pill or booze or whatever. Um, and it, it's a portrait of estrangement. Now, the way I put it, and I mentioned this in the book, when I've spoken to women's groups about these strange creatures called men, I, I say, imagine three things. First of all, that your circle of friends, those intimate friends you have with whom you talk about your relationships, your children, your fears, your worries, your body, et cetera, they're gone, cut away from your life forever. Secondly, um, your linkage to whatever your internal guidance system is, whether you call it your instinct, your intuition, whatever you call it, that's, that's severed forever. And thirdly, that your um, sense of worth 
will be dependent upon the degree to meet to which you meet abstract abstract standards of productivity as dictated by um, strangers. And even when you achieve them, they'll have moved the goalpost. So you have to do it again or do it better the next time. Mm-hmm. And, and the women listening to that are appalled because I think what profound estrangement that represents, what loneliness. Mm-hmm. And I said, if you could imagine those three things, that's the condition of ordinary men. Yeah. And, and that's not something you talk about, you see, because to talk about it is to open yourself vulnerability. Now, having said that, when I came back from Zurich, the relationship of women to men in my practice was nine to one. Today, without advertising, it's nine to one men. Oh, wow. Uh, Yesterday, for example, I had eight hours of patients and 100% of them were men. Mm. Now, I think for two reasons, one or even more men are even more trouble, but secondly, it's more acceptable today than it was 40 or 50 years ago. And and I, I grieve that that world of my father for example who had migraine headaches yeah and i am convinced all that was unexpressed in his life somaticized as it's like two trains on the same track running into each other which was inside of his head every day yeah and i'm convinced it was the the lack of permission to express the emotional pain that he was in yeah and i'm i'm deeply saddened by that when i was a child i intuited but i i had no powers to do anything about that yeah. You know, um, my, my dad, who is 73, he um, has told me this story so many times, but he, he said that when I was a little girl, at some point I had um, fallen and hurt myself and was crying. And he said to me, um, Whitney, you're tough. You've got this. You, you know, you're tough. And he said that I stopped crying and looked at him and said, Daddy, I don't want to be tough. No, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was, it was wise. Yes, yes. And then he said that he thought, oh, I hadn't thought of that. That's right. No, that's right. That's right. I'd never well, there, there was the code, you know, there was the code. And, and I mentioned in the book, you know, Simone Biles in, in the recent Summer Olympics said she got the twisties, which was the overwhelming anxiety. And as we all know, withdrew from so many events that she had trained for and was per- clearly the best gymnast in the world. And, and Lieutenant Governor of a certain state near you <laughs> jumped all over and said she was a national disgrace. And I, and I said, there is, there's the code at work. This is a boy who now is occupying a man's body. Yes. But his instructions still are, you can't be honest about what's going on inside. Yes. And I was so um, impressed that she did that openly. And I also mentioned in there the um, offensive tackle for the Philadelphia Eagles this year took out, I think, two or three games for his own mental health. And I thought that wouldn't have happened in the past. Right. And he was very forthright about that. And I thought, you know, the times they are changing <laughs> very slowly. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, those, those are indications that this is, this is something cracking up. It's a false self is what it is. Again, what it is is the adaptive self, mm-hmm. not the real self. Jung said that uh, neurosis is the flight from authentic suffering, which tells us there's no, no escape from life suffering. The question is, do you confront it in an honest way or, or a dishonest way? Mm-hmm. 
So simply to stuff it or deny it or anesthetize it is, is, is a mode of, um, of, of counterfeit living in the long run. Yeah, that actually leads really perfectly into my next question, which is about your fifth chapter in your book, which I think is called um, Shipwreck, the importance of failure in our lives. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think this chapter speaks to a nearly universal modern psychological ailment, which is a fear of life itself. Mm -hmm. um, and you say in this, in this book, um, or in this chapter, you say, life is for real. It's going to hurt you and you have to bear it and go through it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so my, my question for you, James, is why? Why bear it when we could just as easily numb out or hide? Well, that's a reasonable option. <laughs> and that's an option that every person has every day. Um, and at the same time, you know, there's something inside of all of us that knows what's right for us. Um, I think we knew that as children, we get separated from it. Um, there's something inside of us that is violated by that. We're living in what Sartre called mauvais foi, bad faith. When you live in bad faith with yourself, something inside sickens and sours. And we often wind up having to keep running to, to stay one step ahead of it or to find ways to anesthetize or to distract ourselves. In fact, you could say the chief function of pop culture out there is to distract people from thinking of themselves. Mm. And, and in a sense of being self-critical, self-aware, not, not narcissism, but, but self-awareness. Uh, this is not new. Blaise Pascal in the 17th century, the French scientist and mystic said, the chief difficulty of humans today is their inability to be alone by themselves for 15 minutes in their private chamber. Mm. Now that's before, you know, Facebook and home shopping network, you know? Mm. So he was talking about, and he said, even the court with all of its privilege had to invent the jester. And the jester's function is to divert the court lest they reflect upon their own souls. Mm. And our culture, our pop culture, is little but distraction 24-7. Now, the experience of so many people because of the sequestering from the pandemic has been, oh my goodness. Again, I didn't realize the degree to which my outer world was carrying me or was a distraction or something I had to show up and report to every day. And, and now if I don't do that, you know, and other people respond and said, you know, I, I've found new activities. I've found the recovery of some things I left behind. I'm not spending two hours of my life every day commuting to the office, et cetera. Um, you know, the pandemic played a significant role mm -hmm. in obliging people to, many people, to have to reflect upon themselves in a new way. And maybe meet themselves and not necessarily like the person they met. Yeah. And, and that's where the conversation needs to begin. Mm, that's good. In this book, you also speak a great deal about growing up, about being a grown-up. Yes. What makes a grown-up? What is a grown-up? 
I guess the basic definition that all of us would agree upon is it's not defined by having a big body and big roles because we know a lot of people in life who are going around like big shots and are very infantile in, in their attitudes and behaviors. Um, being a grown-up means I'm, I'm no matter what happened to me, I'm the one making the choices today. What happens today is, is, is something for which I'm accountable. In other words, let's say I've gone through some difficult times in the past, which sent me off in one path or another, or genetics was not friendly to me, or, you know, this family of origin was not so such a nurturing environment, whatever. I'm still responsible today for what's spilling into the world. And I, and I have to take account of that and, and say, where is that coming from in me? When I do something, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Well, the, the outer rules might define it, but then inwardly, is that it in service to an old fear-based response? Is that one of the old adaptations? Was its chief uh, agenda here um, protection rather than being honest about something? Um, an adult is a person who is accountable. That's the key word. And by that standard, all of us would like to escape that definition because it means, oh my goodness, I have an awful lot to be accountable for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. One of the things I loved most about this book is actually connected to this idea of being accountable. And it's the um, brilliant way that you disabuse the reader of this notion that psychotherapy, or at least depth psychotherapy, is mm -hmm. meant to make us all feel better. Yeah. 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 And there's... um. You have a wonderful passage at the very beginning of the book where you talk about what an honest, full professional disclosure might sound like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, would you want to read it or do you want me to read it? Well, you read it, please. I don't have it in front of me. Um, please do. Okay. So here it is. First, you will have to deal with this core issue the rest of your life. And at best, you will manage to win a few skirmishes in your long uncivil war with yourself. Decades from now, you will be fighting on these familiar fronts, though the terrain may have shifted so much that you may have difficulty, you may have difficulty recognizing the same old, same old. Second, you will be obliged to disassemble the many forces you have gathered to defend against your wound. At this late date, it is your defenses, not your wound, that cause the problem and arrest your journey. But removing those defenses will oblige you to feel all the discomfort of that wound again. And third, you will not be spared pain, vouchsafed wisdom, or granted exemption from future suffering. Well, <laughs> I, I'll stand by those words. It, it certainly <laughs> does tend to um, disabuse the uh, self-help genre, doesn't it? Um, three, mm -hmm. three steps to this or that, 30 days to this. It's um, because, first of all, life is constantly throwing up challenges to us, as we know. But again, the magnitude of our earliest attitudes, adaptations, and stories, as I was suggesting, cannot be discounted. You don't cut them out of you. They are there, no matter how tall the skyscraper, the elevator always goes. Through the, the the bottom floors first, and that means every choice you make is to some degree 
influenced by the template of our earliest accounts of self and world and how to, how to deal with it. And um, some of that is helpful. Some of that's productive, of course. Uh, other parts of us bind us to that disempowered state or that adaptive state. And if there were no soul, and I'm using soul in a very generic sense of, of it's, it's the literal translation of the word psyche. If there was no soul within, then everything would be fine. Just adapt to your environment. Be an emotional chameleon. Just fit in. That's safe and sound and often rewarded. But there's something inside that is autonomous mm -hmm. and produces disturbances in the field. Mm -hmm. and, and in my case, of course, is, was an emotional storm called depression. For others, it will be troubling dreams, or for others, it'll be the disconnect between their achievements and their sense of, of failure, uh, or sense of, of uh, lack of, of feeling of success in things. Um, and, and for others, it will be the disturbances in their marriages or their relationships with friends or children or whomever. So again, it doesn't go away, it goes somewhere. Right. And the single best thing we can do for others is start, um, you know, removing from them some of our unconscious stuff. Mm. And talk is cheap. If I'm going to do that, then I have to really pay, pay attention, don't I? And I'm going to have to perhaps outgrow some of my early adaptations. I mean, we all have, for example, uh, occasions where we think, oh, you know, I really want to speak up about that yesterday, but, but I didn't. Now, now I'm regretting that I did. Well, what donkey stood on your tongue at that moment, right? <laughs> that was an old protection, realize? An old protection. Yeah. Now today, maybe your protections, again, constrict your life. Don't forward it. Um, or, or, or maybe you realize uh, places where you're conflict avoidant or there are places where you're, you're distracted from the real issues that are important to you. That kind of self-analysis is not navel-gazing. It's not narcissism. It's consciousness, right? And again, it's the single best thing for, that we can do for the people around us. Because whatever we're ignorant of mm. is going to be dumped on them regardless. Mm -hmm. you know? That's why Jung said once in something that should haunt all of us, the, the greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of the parent. Yeah. Where I'm stuck, where I'm blocked, my children will be. Or they're going to need to be trying to break through that ceiling and get to that, you see. Yes. Either way, they're... they're carrying on some unfinished business from their, their father or their mother. Yes, that does haunt me as a parent. Mm -hmm. I, I spoke with Lisa Marciano um, many months ago, and we, we talked in depth about um, what our children bear for us if we don't mm -hmm. do this work, yep. which, which mm -hmm. is very compelling to me. Um, of course it is, yeah, because you know our earliest models of what to become are naturally our parental models. You know, people have this notion: you go somewhere and you lie on the couch, and somebody sits behind you and takes a note for everything you say, and you complain about mom and dad. Well, that's not the case. However, don't ever think that mom and dad aren't present in your behaviors, in in the reflexes of your body in your emotional responses, and to some degree in your cognitive processing of life too. 
So the question is, what presence do they have? What role are they playing? And, and how do you grow larger than that history? And Jung said, and I think this is profoundly important, it's not that you solve these problems, you can outgrow them, that's the point. Yeah. In other words, as a child, we might've been afraid at some point to ride a two-wheeler or cross the street by ourselves. And, and then today you might do that without thinking. Well, that old fear is still there. It doesn't get triggered very often, but it can. And when it, when it does, one is pulled out of your adult capacity. Because one of the paradoxes here is we, we all carry that history with us, but you wouldn't turn your automobile over to a child. You would say, look, you're not old enough to drive. But analogously, that's what we do on a daily basis when we have that history making choices for us. Mm. That history is driving our automobile, so to speak. Mm. And you have to say, sit over here, put your seatbelt on, I'm gonna drive this car. And to do that, we need to understand, first of all, the presence of, of that history at work within us. And as, as I said, some of it is positive. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't be able to form relationships or care about justice or fairness in life uh, if you hadn't had some positive bonding experiences. Mm -hmm. They were all negative. You, you would be living in a cave somewhere or be a flaming sociopath, mm -hmm. you know? And most people are strung out somewhere along the, um, <laughs> along the spectrum between uh, an inherent narcissism and, and sociopathy. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it, we're, we're creatures of our history, but there's always something in us wanting fuller expression. Mm -hmm. Another thing I do mention in, in the book and other books is uh, the, the first half of life is about trying to address the questions the world brings to us. What do your parents want from you? Was a school teacher one from you? What is your what do your playmates want from you? What what does your partner want from you? What does the employer want from you, et cetera? And mobilizing enough ego strength and and carry through capacity to meet those expectations is part of becoming a proto-adult. Mm -hmm. But then you have to ask the question: so why am I here really? Am I here just to serve all of these adaptations and external demands? Then you have to ask another question, which is an internal question. What is the soul one of me? What is wanting expression through me? That's mm -hmm. a different question. Mm -hmm. And it's ironic. I mentioned that, that having experienced early life as pretty emotionally uh, turbulent, it's a nice word for that. Um, I found that learning, which is always productive, um, and, and, and intellectualism, I would say, was my protection, my defense against it, mm. until my psyche autonomously pulled me under and said, well, we're not going to let you get away with this. Mm. And in a very short time, I found myself as part of my training working in a psychiatric hospital in a closed ward with psychotic individuals. And it's like, well, if you weren't up for dealing with all that emotional stuff as a child, we're going to give you another chance. You know? <laughs> right? And um, I... I um, <laughs> I learned then to wear a tie. I don't have one on today, but I, I wear a tie often because in the lock ward, they said, if you wear a tie, we'll know to let you out at night, right? Your staff, right? And if you don't have a tie, you get to stay overnight. So I wore a tie, but um, I, I couldn't help but acknowledge my, to myself at that time, all that I was avoiding, I now have an opportunity and a necessity of dealing with. Wow. 
And that's no accident. No. And, and what if we keep running and then we live a fugitive life? You, mm. you know, you spend your life running. Mm-hmm. And look, parts of us do. It's, it's, you know, there's no such thing as perfection. I mean, I think one of the hardest things we all have to deal with is, is learning to accept our imperfection mm-hmm. and to forgive ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I personally find that very, very difficult because mm-hmm. I have high expectations for myself, higher for me than for anybody else around me. And forgiving myself is not an easy prospect, but I keep, I keep working at it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I, I concur. Um, you know, this is actually also related. It's my second to last question for you. Um, chapter 10 of your book is entitled The Resources Within Each of Us. Mm-hmm. And I think you make an argument throughout your book, and it's you know predicated on Jung's argument and his own theory, that mm-hmm. um, the truly indestructible means of support inside of us are often found by enduring mm-hmm. the symptoms or the suffering or the neurosis itself. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that paradox? Yes. Well, it's natural for any of us, as I indicated, indicated before, that when we look for help, whether it's pharmacological or therapeutic or whatever, um, that we want to get, get through this quickly and painlessly. Sometimes, though, the only path to transformation is through the suffering. There's an old medieval saying that was popular in Zurich, or at least we heard it. Um, suffering is the fastest source to completion. So our analysts didn't say to us in Zurich, well, here's, here are the five things you should do. They, they, they often said, go back to your shabby apartment and, and you know, sit with this until you figure out what your psyche is asking of you. you know, there's always a task in these difficult places, the facing of which moves us from passivity into an engagement with our journey. Doesn't mean that it's easy. Doesn't mean that there are outcomes guaranteed. It means you're living in an authentic struggle in your journey. You go through it, not around it. The, there are times in life, as you, as you know, when medication can help people with uh, biological issues. But in many cases, people are looking for the quick fix and avoidance of pain, which is understandable but nothing gets worked through. And, and more of our behavior rises out of fear-based adaptation than any other single behavior. Sounds pretty reductionistic, but I, I really believe it's true if you track it long enough to its roots. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with that per se, because life is difficult and then you die, you know? <laughs> but <laughs> on the other hand, um, it's one thing to have fear, it's something else to live a fearful life. There's a big difference between those. And a fearful life is often avoidant life, an adaptive life, and not the life of which you are capable. And this is not in service to the ego. That's, that's what, you know, popular culture is about, you know. It, it's, it's about being in service to something that is larger than you, and yet is you in some paradoxical way. 
it's, it's in service to this individuation summons that the soul brings to each of us. And the price of not living that is somehow a violation of our core essence of being here. Mm-hmm. And something in us always knows that. That's the paradox. Mm-hmm. Something knows the difference within us. Yes. You know, it's the flight again from authentic suffering, you see. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's part of the dilemma is um, um, we're not saying it's easy, but your life, another way I put it, and a lot of people are puzzled by this. I, I say the goal of life is not happiness, it's meaning. Mm-hmm. Happiness is not a steady state. It's not that you achieve the, the corner office or you achieve this house on the corner or whatever. Because people do that, and it doesn't provide that sustained thing we call or fantasize as happiness. Happiness is contextual. And happiness is a byproduct from time to time of being in right relationship to your own soul. I would never have thought as a child or as a young person that being present to people suffering an hour after hour after hour would make me happy. And it doesn't. But my work does provide me with a happiness that comes out of a sense of meaning. Yeah. See, meaning is what abides. And and when meaning isn't present, it's time to move on towards something that's there. Yes. So underneath this, again, it's about responding to some knowing Mm. of which my ego may be only dimly aware, but which is in some way summoning me to accountability and when i don't observe that and respond to it then it will pathologize Mm -hmm. in symptoms or unconscious behaviors or whatever yes thank you so here's my final question and i ask this to everyone um, that i host on this on this podcast um what is one thing, if you could only pick one thing, that you wish everyone knew? Well, I think I was implying it that I wish everyone knew that there was something inside of them that knows what's right for them, and their well being, psycho spiritually speaking, will be best served by trying to have an ongoing conversation with that. Emily Dickinson in 1862 wrote a curious aphorism. She said, the sailor cannot see the north, but knows the needle can. Mm. And I think as she was aware, because she was rejecting a lot of the um, pressures in her family and her immediate culture there in Amherst in a very courageous way, she was also aware of the slippage of many of the traditional um, institutions of authority around her. So it led her to that metaphor. Sometimes you get in a, a dark place where you can't see your way forward. But, you know, if you have a compass, you know, a compass that is within you, it, it will tell you what's true north. And therefore, from that, you can chart your course. Hmm. So the one thing I would say is something I think a child knows, but then we, we can't hang on to it. We're too tiny to act it out. So we, we, we lose it. You know, Wordsworth alludes to that in his 1805 poem on Ode on Intimations of Immortality as recollected in Scenes of Childhood, where he says, 
you know, we came carrying it with us, but every day, you know, effaced a bit more of it until we, we become, you know, ordinary adaptive people. And he says, once in a while, you can re-see that, revision it in, in, in the spontaneity and creative process and essential joy of the child. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question is, can, can you ever tap into that again? And so again, in, in concise form, um, something in us knows what's right for us. If we can dialogue with that and trust it and risk it, you will find your life takes on a depth and a purpose, and I think a core dignity that will otherwise be missing. Amen. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It's been a real privilege. Well, you're welcome, Whitney, and I wish you well. I'm very grateful to Dr. Hollis for the sincerity and generosity of his presence and his teaching today. If you're interested in reading and learning more from him, we will have his website, book titles, and other references listed in our show notes. The Hidden World is edited and produced by David Gomez, and I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Be good to yourselves and each other.